Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today, we are occupying The Extra Environmentalist. That's right. We're camping out in the squares of your mind coming to you through the podcast. That's right, Justin. We are occupying the minds and the hearts of the faithful listeners of The Extra Environmentalist across the world. The Arab Spring has definitely spilled into becoming an American fall as the Occupy Wall Street movement which started here in Vancouver thanks to the Adbusters magazine. Their office is just down the street from my house, like literally a few blocks. And they've been talking since earlier this year, since July, about occupying Wall Street. Didn't seem like it was much of a success, but now they're getting thousands of people out. And then they had a huge clash on the Brooklyn Bridge, which I'm sure you've seen video of or heard of. I did see that. That was ridiculous. They arrested like 700 people. Yeah, I think that Americans have not been used to protesting for so long, like a generation. The last time there was a major protest movement, it was uh, Vietnam era. And during that time, people really had a good knowledge of how to protest. And we're going to learn. People are going to learn how to protest better. This is a nonviolent movement rising up in the United States, protesting the economic system first and foremost. This is the very thing that I saw when I was in Greece and Spain and in Spain. I was asking people, you know, what are all these people going to do in a few weeks? Is this movement going to die out? Is it going to grow? And everyone said, you know, give it a few weeks and they'll all go back home. And they didn't. It kept growing and it kept getting bigger and it kept getting more organized. And before you know it, there were groups of people rushing around to foreclosed homes, preventing the banks from actually foreclosing on the home because they knew that what was happening was unjust and absurd. And people can criticize the movement all they want because it's definitely not perfect. But it's the start of a new American protest movement. And it's it's exciting, but it's also a little unnerving because there's a lot of people who have been talking about social unrest in the United States for a long time. And it's actually starting to happen. Such it's as actually starting to come back home. Yeah, such as in episode 20 of The Extra Environmentalist with Manfred Max Neef that we released a few months ago. He said it was only a matter of time before the spark hits and then it, it happens. It does. And it's a little bit scary to actually see people, American citizens out in the street protesting and chanting. It makes me feel both a little afraid and a little hopeful. This is the new face of the nation. This is what it's all about. This is what it's come down to. This is the new face of what it's going to mean to be a new citizen in this in this brave new world of a reformed economic system of a reformed being a world citizen. It's it's all it's all changing. It's all happening right now on the ground and we're a part of it. And that is a very very exciting thing. Absolutely. And one of the things we want to make sure that we don't get caught up in is being completely on the offensive while we're not designing the new system for once the old one falls. 
And so we see it falling all around us with crashing stock markets and crazy things happening in, in financial markets around the world. And then we see it when people are hitting the streets protesting the economic system. But we want to make sure that we have a viable alternative for as the current one crumbles, we'll need to be able to fall back on something that works. And so that's what today's that's podcast right, just, is all about. Yeah, I agree that as this old system kind of wastes away and falls apart, the new system needs to be there and needs to be robust enough to handle the traffic that's going to get. I mean, you can't take away the old system and the old form of government and the old form of, of doing business without replacing it with something else because that need is still there. That need for support and need for, you know, things that the old system provides, they're going to change form for sure. If those new things are not there as the old ones crumble, then the old ones are just going to change form and be the same as, as they were. And that's why we're talking with Charles Eisenstein, who is one of my favorite authors and who got me, you know, thinking about all these things to begin with. I read The Ascent of Humanity a few months ago, and that I mean the duality and all the thing, thinking about humans as part of a collective. What do you have to say, Justin? We spoke with Charles about the myth that we've created around money in our society and the ways in which that plays out in our daily lives. He's got a new book out called Sacred Economics, which served as the basis for the discussion, which I read through a few weeks ago and absolutely one of the best books I've read through this year to gain a deeper understanding of the economic uh, turmoil that's currently sweeping across the globe. It's absolutely the book to read because Charles is not describing a gloom and doom vision of economic collapse. He's saying that our economic system is falling apart, but that there are better possibilities for reforming our money system because money at its very heart is a very powerful and positive thing. We've just constructed it in a really negative way. And so by looking at all these other systems of money, we can actually take the human potential and take it to the next level and create a more equitable and positive society for us to live in. I'm all for taking humanity to the next level. That's I think right. That's a very a great thing to do. Yeah. So I'm excited to listen to this interview. Let's jump right in. Charles, you're a public speaker, contributor to Reality Sandwich, faculty member at Goddard College, writer on civilization and human evolution, and author of several books which describe and provide alternatives to the various aspects of the philosophy of separation that is rooted in our modern society and systems. These books include The Yoga of Eating, The Ascent of Humanity, and most recently the book we're here to talk about today, Sacred Economics, which describes the multitude of problems facing our global monetary order while presenting clear and realistic alternatives. What is the fundamental myth of our society? Yeah, that's a really big picture question. But that's the level that the book goes down to. You know, we walk around and many have a sense that there's something wrong in the world, but we're not really sure what it is. But whatever it is, it makes us not want to wholeheartedly participate in the program, the life that's offered to us as normal, because we have the sense of wrongness. And then what I've done in my books is in different ways, I've asked, well, what is the source of the wrongness that we experience. And that's what gets me down to this level of myth that you're talking about, or this level of what are the agreements or stories that create our world? What are the things that everybody agrees on without even knowing that they agree on them? And what I found is that, is that you have to go down to this level to really re-engineer or reconceive money, because money is just so fundamental to our culture. Anytime you ask, well, why are things the way they are? Pretty soon you get down to money, or on a personal level too, when people are planning their future 
future. It is really hard to escape the money question. And that's why I take it down to that level. What is this thing that has come to rule the world? And why does it rule the world? What is the role of money in this myth that we create in our society? And what is money? Is it an agreement? Is it green dollar bills that we carry around? Is it the gold that we store in Fort Knox that may or may not be there? What is it? On a physical level, money is almost nothing. Only 3% of it maybe is paper, which is almost nothing. But the vast majority of money is even less. It's just electronic bits. It's something that has almost no physical existence at all, yet it rules the world. Well, why do these symbols on paper or in computers have such power? It's because of our agreements, the, the agreements that surround those symbols. And these agreements are tied in with other agreements. But it's kind of like the idea that you can affect the world through symbols is almost a superstitious idea. If you go look at cave paintings, you know, and they say, you know, these primitives thought that by writing things on the wall of the cave, they would get better luck on the hunt. Or in a voodoo culture, you know, that the voodoo master can write magical symbols on a piece of paper and control your mind. In the mail, you get a piece of paper with magical symbols on it that you might not even fully understand. And depending on what that writ, that magical chip says you could either be elated or you could be despondent. And on top of it, it says account balance. And those numbers, they could even enslave you for life just because of symbols. So it has tremendous power. And I asked the question, what has enslaved us to these symbols? And the good news is, you know, this is not a doom and gloom book because the good news is that the money system as we've known it is really falling apart. I don't know how much you read the headlines coming from Europe about the problems in the Eurozone or the recent volatility in the stock market. You know, these are all symptoms of an accelerating breakdown. And so that offers the opportunity, I think, in our lifetimes and probably within the next few years to create other agreements about money that make it into something very different. And so as you're saying, the monetary system is absolutely breaking down all around us. We see signs of it in the headlines every day. We see the societal systems that support the monetary system breaking down, such as employment, you know, the expectation of, of having jobs and getting jobs to get money to participate in the monetary system. And so how much longer do you see the current system continuing without the monetary system becoming a primary question in the minds of everyone who's criticizing society because so many parts of society are criticized, such as the political system. And a lot of people criticize the job and unemployment crisis, but very few people have been targeting in on a national level on the actual question of the monetary system. It's really hard to say. Any number of random events could precipitate a crisis. I don't think anybody can really predict how long they can hold things together. But I know that, especially if you're young, like in your 20s, I know that you should be preparing for kind of a future that's very different than the present and very different from what we've been told the future will be. Like a lot of the things that are practical in light of the money system that we live in will not be practical. And, you know, we get a lot of pressure to do things that are practical for our future, you know, major in accounting or major in finance or get a business degree and that kind of stuff. But it could very well be that it's actually much more practical to learn to play the guitar and do it well than it is to get a degree in finance. And I can explain actually why I think that too. Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, go ahead. It's just kind of like the application of real world skills in place of more theoretical knowledge. Is, is that kind of where you're coming from? Basically, if things break down a lot, then obviously a lot of the rules that are useful today aren't going to be useful. But what will be useful no matter what? 
That's one question I ask. Uh, what will be valuable no matter what? Some people think that maybe gold, for example, will maintain its value so that if things break down, you should own a lot of gold. And there's like a whole subculture on the internet that is fixated on gold. They want to return to a gold standard. They think that owning a lot of gold is the best investment you can make right now. But gold isn't actually as secure as people think. Even if you own physical gold, then property is just as much an agreement as money is. And if things get really bad, then the government can confiscate your gold. Or if things get so bad that there's not even a government, then men with guns will come and take your gold anyway. That's not a secure investment. No investment is secure because every investment depends on the agreement of society that you actually own it. But what is secure is basically having something to give. And if you have a skill that will be useful, whether or not we have the money system that we have today, then you'll essentially have a secure future. People will always want and need music. People will always want and need healing, food, those kind of things. So like a lot of these kind of artistic or idealistic things that people are pursuing today, like I meet young people all the time, you know, who are, they're really interested in permaculture, you know, or want to be an artist. Like, I think that kind of stuff is actually more practical than trying to mold yourself into a functionary of the current system. And, you know, to add insult to injury, even if you do conform to the program and suffer through college or whatever and get your accounting degree, that's the injury. And then the insult is you don't get a job anyway. Even if you play by the rules, you still don't get the rewards these days. The system is breaking down. That's true. That's true. So kind of going off that question, you said that people will need to redefine what it means to be educated in a sense. Um, young people will go to college to learn a business or learning to cut people up in surgery. Uh, when those things are no longer relevant, the education goals and even the dreams and goals of young people starting out in the world will change as well. Can you talk a little bit about what that new paradigm will look like, what people will see themselves becoming in a world where there's no longer a monetary system to strive for and, and to compete with other people yeah. for? Like, I'm not saying there won't be a money system. I just think that it'll be very different than the one we have today. And maybe this is a good time to talk about the, the deeper myths or the deeper stories of our civilization. We're, we're in transition right now in a lot of ways. But I think the deepest or most significant way that we're in transition is that we're transitioning from an age of separation where we saw and, and felt ourselves as being separate from each other, separate from other beings, this kind of soul encased in flesh or a mind encased in a body, looking out on an objective world out there and therefore in competition with other beings and humans being separate from nature. And we're, we're transitioning from that toward a reunion, an age of connection, where we no longer believe that we are separate from nature and no longer believe that we are fundamentally separate from each other. And therefore, understanding that what we do to other beings, what we do to the biosphere, what we do to other humans, we are in some way doing to ourselves. And that the nature of life is not a Darwinian competition or a classical economists' competition, maximizing your self-interest at the expense of others, but that actually wealth comes through cooperation, that life evolves through symbiosis and the merger of organisms, the merger of DNA, and that understanding that ancient cultures were generally very cooperative and operated on gift principles. And so we're going through this transition. And anything that is aligned with reunion, with non-separation with connection has a bright future. So for example, in the, in the medical system, the old paradigm of competition and separation 
basically sees all other organisms as competitors. And so medicine became, okay, how do we conquer the bacterial world and the viral world? How do we control nature? How do we control bodily processes? How do we become lords and masters of nature? How do we develop the next weapon in the arsenal of medicine? This was the old medical paradigm. The new medical paradigm is very different. It sees that health isn't just individual health, but that the health of all beings is reflected in our own health. And therefore, on some deep level, if you're going to heal, you also have to heal your relationships. And so emotional and spiritual issues become important in the healing process. And nature is no longer seen as an enemy and inert source of resources, but as an ally. And so things like plant medicine become logical. And, and so they reflect this idea that we are connected to the universe. And so this is just the example of medicine, but you can take it anywhere. Essentially, anything that enacts our newfound desire to heal nature, to contribute to the beauty of the world, to serve other people, to serve other beings, all of these things have a future because they are aligned with the new myth, the new story of the people, the new set of agreements we have as a society as to what's valuable, what's real, what's important, what the purpose of life is. And out of these stories and agreements, part of these will be a story of money. Because like I said before, money is nothing but an agreement that is linked to all the other agreements that comprise society. So the story of money will change too, and it will be different from the kind of money that we have today. So it'll be a system that rewards generosity rather than accumulation, where you can't get rich by owning money and lending it out at interest, for example. Or you can't get rich by polluting and exporting the costs to people downwind or to future generations, where you can't just strip mine the land and keep the profits for yourself. All, all of these things are going to transition. In the generation that Seth and I are a part of, we're facing this educational crisis where our education is, as you were saying a moment ago, giving us the injury of, of having to go through this system that fits and conforms us to this paradigm of separation, to these jobs and these roles that don't necessarily prepare us for what's coming next. And then there's this insult of there being no jobs on the other side or the jobs that we do have available to us really just provide us with money and no deeper satisfaction whatsoever. So so perhaps you could talk a little bit about what the limitations of our educational system are and how we can recover from it in this generation to prepare for yes. a, a new and very different future. I'm going to generalize a little bit here sure. and make, make some blanket statements that aren't 100% true, but that definitely speak to a truth. Um, and one of them is that education as we know it, school as we know it, is essentially based on the belief that life sucks. So it's necessary to be induced to do things that you don't really want to do for the sake of external rewards. So you are given assignments that really, if you could choose what you're going to do that day, you wouldn't be sitting down doing that assignment. You'd be playing outside, but you're compelled to do the assignment anyway, because this grade is being held over your head, which you associate with well, taps into approval, you know, parental approval and, and that kind of thing. And then also by the time you get into college, maybe it's more of it's associated with your financial security in the future, et cetera, et cetera. But it's an external reward. So school is training in doing things you don't care about for the sake of an external reward. Now, why is that important? Well, because most of the jobs on offer in our society are the same. You do something that you really don't care about that much, but you're made to care about it, you're paid to care about it, you're doing it for an external reward. And that 
in a way, was necessary in the industrial age when most jobs were really unpleasant. Even if you were a, a white collar worker, you know, you picture these rows of clerks and accountants filling out numbers, you know, with their green visors on. There's just a lot of really routine work or assembly line work. Or even if you're at the top, you know, like how much do you really care in your heart about, say, you're a marketing executive, you know, about increasing the market share of Crest over AIM or something like that? You only care about it because it's associated with money. And I'm generalizing here, but essentially we have an educational system that's designed for a world in which work is unpleasant or counter to our nature. And this assumption in economics, it's called the disutility of work. It's a basic assumption of economics. We don't want to work, so we have to be paid to. But I think everybody has experienced situations where you want to work, where you're doing something and it's not just consuming and being entertained, but you're doing something creative and productive. And it's not for the money, it's because you really want to do it. If anyone's a musician or an artist, then you know what I'm talking about. And you, know, you get involved in something and you just really want to do it, regardless of whether you get paid. This is a problem for economists. So one of the things that I envision in a sacred economy is that more and more work will be of this nature. It'll be things that people really want to do. Because, I mean, look at what things people really want to do now. You know, they want to do permaculture, you know, they want to do music. They want to do things that add to the beauty of the earth. They want to teach kids in the inner city how to garden, set up a bicycle repair shop and teach kids to do that. I mean, there's so many beautiful things that people want to do. They want to restore ecosystems. They want to build houses for people who've been devastated by earthquakes. You know, things that people want to do coincide with the things that are needed for the healing of our planet. And they also are aligned with the these new stories, these new myths, a new story of the world that we're creating. And sooner or later, and hopefully sooner, the economy and the money system is going to shift into alignment with these kind of endeavors also. The best way to prepare for the economy of the future is to get in the habit of doing what you really love and not those kind of obsolete things that you only do because you're paid to, which usually come down to how do we convert more of the earth into money? Up until now, if you were, are good at that, then you're gonna get a good job. And if you're great at that, if you can cut down whole forests, blow the tops off mountains and get the coal, then you're gonna make a lot of money. But that is becoming obsolete. And if you want security and you want a place in society, then it's time to focus on giving those things that the planet and society really need. All we ever wanted was everything. Was Since 1971, when President Nixon took the United States off what was left of the gold standard, the world has operated under a system of money called fiat. The dollar, the pound, the euro are all government fiat currencies. Fiat is a Latin word meaning let it be so. It is the law that this government currency be money. Indeed, without that legal enforcement and the fact that we must pay taxes in this money, that dollar bill or that computer digit that represents a dollar would be pretty much meaningless. Think about money on the deepest level. It's actually a very beautiful thing. I have maybe a gift um, that can meet your need, but you don't have anything to give me right now. Maybe you're a software engineer, and I really do not need any software right now, but I'm a baker and you're hungry and you do need bread, okay? So I have a gift, you have a need, but you don't have anything to give me right now, but that's okay. You can give me money instead. Money is simply at its most beautiful, its most beautiful form. Money is simply a token of gratitude. It says, thank you. Here I'm giving you, it's not useful for anything. It's just little pieces of paper. 
but it's a token of my gratitude. And it says that in the past, I did something for somebody else. I gave a gift and they gave me their token of gratitude. So money, because it connects gifts and needs, it should be something that makes us all richer. But as we can see, we're actually much poorer because we don't share things. We have tremendous wealth, but we keep it all for ourselves. Only the government has the power to issue fiat money. But banks can create it through lending. If somebody wants to borrow $10, a bank can create it from nowhere and lend it. It can then charge interest. Banks also create money by lending against an asset, such as a house. They're given the deeds to the house, and they create the money out of nowhere and lend it. Add interest, of course. Over the last 40 years, since this fiat system of money became the global norm, the supply of money has grown exponentially. In fact, We've seen the greatest growth in the supply of money in history, but who benefits? Starting in the 1980s, public policy in the United States became very, very congenial for rich people. Uh, so there was a lot of financial deregulation. The banks got what they wanted. Washington and Wall Street became very much intertwined. You know, back in the 60s, uh, the marginal tax rate on the highest earnings, like for every dollar that you made over about 1.2 million dollars, you paid 91 cents in taxes, which is a lot. There were, of course, the famous uh, Reagan-era tax cuts and then the Bush-era tax cuts. And today, you know, you, you pay nowhere near that. You pay 30 to 40 cents on the dollar. And that's had a huge impact on the realignment of wealth. The irony is that while I would have expected that the markets might have widened the income inequality, that politics would have come in to, to narrow it by doing some income redistribution. The politics took this widened inequality and widened it still further because the rich not only became richer, they became a lot more politically powerful. Then those companies and individuals that get this money early can spend it before the prices of the things they want to buy have risen to reflect the new money in circulation. In other words, they get services, products, assets cheap. But prices soon rise. So holders of assets such as shares or houses will then see gains without there necessarily being any improvements to the company or house in question. Often, this can lead to speculative bubbles. Who gets this money early? However money is created, be it through lending, fractional reserve banking, financial bailouts, or old-fashioned money printing, banks are always at or near the top of the money-issuing pyramid. Next come corporations who borrow large sums, those on lucrative government contracts for new ventures, particularly overseas, banks' associate companies and partners, those that borrow early and at low rates, and the bank's senior employees. They all quickly get their share of the pie. In some cases, this will come in the form of bonuses. But what about those at the bottom of the pyramid? Those on fixed wages or incomes? Those who live in remote areas? Or those with savings? By the time this newly created money has filtered down to them, the prices of the things they want to buy have increased. Their savings buy them less, however, and their wages remain largely unchanged. In some cases, they have to take on debt just to be able to afford the things they were previously able to buy, which means they have to go back to the banks. In reality, this process of creating money only redistributes wealth from the bottom to the top of the pyramid. 
and thus that ever-increasing gulf between rich and poor gets bigger and bigger and bigger. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Charles Eisenstein, author of Sacred Economics. Is our default state just to do nothing? You were speaking a little bit about how so many of the things that we want to do as an artist or musician motivate us to work, even when there is no money as an incentive. And it seems like so many people that I know are so exhausted when they finish their day jobs, for example, they often will just come home and watch TV and sit around. Or if they get a day off, they just want to do nothing. Is that their default state? Or is there something more to humanity that's that's deeper? than that if let's say there were no jobs and everyone was on extended unemployment what would people do with their time I think that laziness and procrastination is simply a form of rebellion. We're trained to do these things that we don't really want to do. We're compelled to do them by the threat of, you know, you're not going to be secure. You're not going to survive. You're going to end up in the gutter if you don't do it. That's basically a gun to your head and it's slavery. If someone says you do this or you're going to die, then you're their slave. And in that sense, we're all slaves of the money system. A lot of the people out here probably have student debt. And you know really exactly what I'm talking about, this feeling of being enslaved to money. And, you know, naturally, we rebel against slavery. And one way that we do that is we get lazy and we procrastinate, we get addicted to things, we get depressed. There's all kinds of ways that we rebel and refuse to participate fully. What we see as you know, human nature is lazy and you need to be induced or incentivized or coerced into working, that's actually a symptom of the kind of work that's available. Like we'd rather do nothing than to sell product to people who don't need it or something like that. Get a job as a telemarketer and, and yeah, of course you'd rather do nothing. But many people experience when they really do step away from the system and allow themselves the opportunity to do nothing for a while eventually you're going to want to do something. I mean, you could even just try going out into the woods and sitting or just even in your room, sit and do nothing for a while. Sooner or later, the urge to do will arise, the urge to create, the urge to serve, to contribute. It's in that, but maybe maybe a lot of us need a phase of nothing, a phase of giving ourselves permission to step back. Do you think that's in all people, that urge to, to do something creative and positive? Yeah, but sometimes it takes a long time to recover that. For some people, it might mean stepping back, stepping away from the rat race for a long time and giving ourselves like permission. Yeah, you know, I'm just not going to make myself do anything for a month or for a year even. And when people go through that, and usually there is kind of a, an empty space between phases of life. It's natural to want to step back for a while. But then when that phase is complete, then authentic desire is able to arise and we begin to discover purpose. That should be the purpose of school, is to discover why are you here on earth? What is your gift? What are you, what are you, what are you here for? And this is another piece of evidence of that, you know, that if you are at a job that doesn't call forth your gifts and devote them towards something you care about, then that job feels soul deadening and it feels like you're not living your life. And I've been through this in my 20s, you know, this feeling of panic. Oh my God, I'm living the life I'm, I'm being paid to live. When do I get to live my life? Do I get to do that? 
you know, how, how long, how old do I have to be before I get to do what I care about? Such a basic question. I mean, why even be alive if you don't have that? I asked some of my coworkers who have been working at their jobs for, you know, 10, 15 years what they would do if they didn't have to go to work every day. And I heard all kinds of answers. I heard I would do nothing. I would just I would start up a you know a little business or something like that. The majority of the answers were I would sit on my ass and do absolutely nothing. And I said, well, okay, so you give yourself a year of doing nothing. What are you gonna do then? And I got these blank looks, like what? I don't I don't know. I have no idea what I'm gonna do. So reawakening that desire to actually want to do positive and creative things can sometimes be a process in people who have been you know put down by the system for so long and going to jobs where they feel underutilized and they feel that this is this is not really their life anymore is there a place for reawakening that that kind of energy in people again is it just doing the nothing to, to actually see that come alive again in people i think that for many people it's inescapable you know that that you do have to go through a time of doing nothing just because the habits the mental habits of a job are so strong that it just takes some time to unlearn them. But also it helps to be inspired by people who are doing things that that speak to them and that are exciting to other people. And even the idea that you're here for a reason, you know, you're, you're here blessed with certain gifts that are meant to be used for the benefit of all. Like even just hearing that for some people will awaken something. And maybe there's different stages of, of this process, a stage of of half-hearted compliance, stage of rebellion, stage of, of searching, stage of despair, a stage of nothingness, and then an insight or a revelatory experience. Um, so yeah, there's there's a process and there's different maps of that process. And I think a lot of people are going to start going through it very soon. Most work is degrading, you know, and people are so accustomed to being degraded and associating work with being degraded. In a way, like, Unemployment is a good thing. Uh, it gives us a chance to unlearn some habits. The only problem with unemployment is that you don't have money, at least in this country. I was wondering if people default to acting in their own rational self-interest, like this rational economic man, how close do you think it is in our default state to act like a rational economic man? And do you think that altruism truly exists? Well, altruism means something very different when you inhabit a larger sense of self If the nature of self truly is this skin encapsulated ego, separate from other beings, then the only time you're going to serve other beings is when you're being altruistic. Like by definition, if you're expending your energy to benefit somebody else, instead of using it to benefit yourself, then you're contradicting your own nature in that paradigm. But when we understand that we're not really separate from other beings, then the things that we do to serve other beings, we're also doing to serve ourselves. A lot of people are uh, learning this just in a very experiential way, that when they do volunteer work, they feel really good, and somehow life works out in magical ways. And they learn that it's just not true, that you know, looking out for numero uno and controlling as much as possible of the world's resources and making sure that every time I give, I'm going to get more back. That's the attitude of interest on money. They learn that that doesn't actually work, and it's just not true. So in the ancient cultures, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, about ancient economies in, in tribal cultures and stuff. They were gift cultures. So say you were a really good hunter and you brought back a large animal. You wouldn't dry the meat and store it and save it and keep it away from other people and say, well, I'll only give you this, but you'll owe me. You have to give me even more and try to get rich by accumulating and controlling. What you would do is you would have a gigantic feast and invite everybody and give it all away for all kinds of wealth in those societies. 
And if you were a big giver, if you frequently gave gifts to other people, then you would have a high status in that society. Status came from, from being generous, not from controlling. And not just status, but security too. Because if you give a lot, you create gratitude. Now, also, by the same token, if say you maybe you're not such a great hunter or such a great water finder or whatever, but somebody else is, anybody in your circle who has good luck, that's your good luck too. It's not like in a money economy when we're all in competition with each other, competing for a a scarce resource because money is basically designed to be scarce. You know, in a money economy, someone else's good fortune is actually your bad luck. Someone else got it first. But in a gift economy, it's the opposite. So somebody has some great fortune. That's good news for you too, because you're going to be invited to the feast. You're going to be given some part of that other person's wealth. So it's a completely different way of thinking. What we know of as as selfish or greedy behavior just doesn't exist. It just is illogical. It would be illogical to hoard things for yourself when security and prestige come from sharing. So as one tribes person said, when asked, he was asked by the anthropologist, you know, why don't you store up meat? Then you won't be hungry if you don't get any. He said, I store meat in the belly of my brother. And that's what he was talking about. I give it all away. And then when they have some, they give it to me too. That's a very positive way of thinking about our society. And and I'm sure you've had devil's advocates contradict you on that and say, you know, that's all well and good. But in our modern day, you know, international market-based society, if you don't save up for yourself, you won't be able to feed your family. What does it take to, to make that shift in, in mindset? And as all these financial systems are just kind of breaking around us, will this gift economy kind of emerge naturally? Is this the next step in what it means to be okay. human? Yeah, like the, the devil's advocate that you were just saying, it's, it's actually true that we live in a system that does not reward generosity and that does reward hoarding and not sharing. And encourages hoarding. If you can get rich by merely having money and you lend it out at interest and you and you say, I'm not going to give it to you unless you give me even more back, that is the opposite of what I just described in a gift economy. So indeed, we have a problem. We have a money system that does not embody the principles of the gift. So what I'm saying, I'm not saying, you know, we should just change our attitudes about money and then it's going to work because money is an embodiment of the attitudes that we've had for hundreds of years. But what I'm saying is that we need to change our attitudes and at the same time, we need to change the money system that embodies our attitudes. And our attitudes create money and our money creates our attitudes too. And so both are part of a integrated mosaic, a pattern, and the whole pattern has to shift. Part of that shift is to think a different way about your purpose in life, how to live on earth, what you're here for, to begin to orient in every situation and especially when planning your future or thinking about what you want to do to orient toward what am I here to give? What would I like to give? That's one part of it. But then also in the dimension of social activism, we also need to create a money system that embodies these new attitudes, the understanding of interconnection, the understanding of the new role of humanity on earth, you know, the understanding that we are not an exception to nature's laws. Today, money pretends that we are an exception to nature's laws. Because here we have this thing that grows exponentially on a finite planet. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. I think both levels are necessary at the same time. 
And so what does this new monetary system look like? What what are its components? And maybe you could describe some of the ideas that you covered in the book, like negative interest currency and a currency that's based on, on the commons. There's probably, I'd say, like five or six main pillars of the book's vision. One of them is negative interest. And without getting too technical, let's just say you had a ton of potatoes and you could keep them all for yourself. But if you do, before you can eat more than a tenth of them, they're going to all go bad. They're going to all rot. So it's not to your advantage to hoard them, but it is to your advantage to give a 50 pound bag of potatoes to everybody you know, and to say in the future, in half a year, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, you can give me a 50 pound bag of potatoes. Anytime you happen to have, have it, or anytime I happen to need it and that you happen to have it. So essentially it's to your it's in your rational self-interest to make a zero interest loan of a 50 pound bag of potatoes. Why? Because if you keep them, they're going to go bad. Well, now suppose you have a ton of money instead of potatoes. You're not going to do that. Most people aren't going to do that. You're not going to say, you know, I've got more money than I can use right now. So I'm going to give it away. I'm going to lend it out to everybody I know at zero interest. Why don't you do that? Why do you do it with potatoes and not money? It's because money is different from potatoes. Potatoes go bad. They decay. They obey the law of return in nature. Everything it does in nature, all things decay and return to their source. Even gold eventually gets stolen or something if you don't protect it and maintain it. But money is different. Money, because it's abstract, it's symbols, and because of we live in an interest-based system, money grows with time. It's not like potatoes. And essentially, that's why we always lend it out at interest. So what happens if you make money like potatoes? If you subject it, say, to a negative 5% interest rate, then people will behave the same way that they behave with potatoes. I'd be happy to lend it out to you at 0% interest. When you have some money and when I need it, you can pay me back. And that's kind of a simplified explanation for that, for that idea. Has negative interest ever been implemented in a, in a real currency? Are there historical examples that we can draw on? Yeah, there's a few. In the 1930s, there was a town in Austria, Vorgel, W-O-R-G-L. If you Google it, you'll find out about it online. They implemented it there. And then it almost got implemented all over the United States in 1933. But then Roosevelt declared all of these emergency currencies illegal. And, you know, we chose the New Deal instead. But the way it works is that your currency note had these little squares where you'd have to affix a stamp that cost money for the bill to remain valid. So say if you had a $100 bill, and you had to put a $1 stamp on it every month. If you didn't do that, if you didn't maintain your $100 bill that way, at the end of a year, it'd only be worth $88. So you'd rather lend it out. If you didn't need to spend it, you'd rather lend it out to somebody and get $100 back in a year. Today, a system like that would be implemented in a different way. It would be mostly through having negative interest on deposits in the Federal Reserve. In the Middle Ages, there was something somewhat similar. In England and in continental Europe, they had a system where people would, the Lord would, would mint these pennies. And then every six years or something, you had to exchange the old pennies for new ones. They were silver pennies. And for every four that you exchanged, you only got three back. And the Lord kept the difference. You would have an incentive to spend your money before that happened. So it, it encourages flow. And that's another feature of negative interest. And I get a bit technical in the book about how it encourages lending in a context of economic degrowth or a steady state economy. I'm not going to go into all those details right now, but they're in the book and in some of my talks and stuff. But that's just one of the pillars to the negative interest. 
And there's local currency stuff. There's the whole gift economy of the internet. Another important thing is to make sure that you can't make a profit by exporting the costs onto somebody else. For example, you set up a factory, you pollute the water, and the shrimp fishermen downstream lose their livelihoods. So basically, you make the profits, they pay the costs. You shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be able to create pollution and have future generations pay the costs for your profits. That's not fair. But today, our economic system allows you to do that. And so that's another important feature of a sacred economy. It no longer allows you to externalize costs like that. And so I've described some ways in which that principle of cost internalization can be incorporated into the money system. And then there's restoring the commons. There's a lot of different pieces that all come together in the vision. is going to crash and it's going to fall pretty hard because markets are ruled right now by fear. Investors and the big money, the smart money, uh, I'm talking about uh, the big funds, the hedge funds, the institutions, they don't buy this rescue plan. They know the market is toast. They know the stock market is finished. The euro, as far as they're concerned, they don't really care. They're moving their money away to safer uh, assets uh, like treasury bonds, uh, 30-year bonds, and the U.S. dollar. Um, so it's not going to work. Can you pin down exactly what would keep investors happy, make them feel more confident? Uh, it doesn't matter. That, that's it. See, I'm a trader. Uh, I don't really care about that kind of stuff. If I see an opportunity to make money, I go with that. For most traders, we don't really care that much how they're going to fix the economy, how they're going to fix the, uh, the whole situation. Our job is to make money from it. And personally, I've been dreaming of this one for three years. Uh, I, I have a confession, which is uh, I go to bed every night, I dream of another recession. I dream of another moment like this. Why? Because uh, people don't seem to uh, maybe remember, but uh, the 30s depression the depression in the 30s wasn't just about a market crash. There were some people who were prepared to make money from that crash. It's called dumpster diving, going through garbage, looking for food. In the United States, it's becoming a movement. Potatoes are probably decent. I'm starting to feel moisture around my toes. Not a good sign. For them, grocery store garbage is groceries. Uh, when the market crashes, uh, when the euro and the big stock markets crash, if you know what to do, if, if you have the right plan to set up, uh, you can you can make a lot of money from this. Uh, uh. If you could see the people around me, jaws have collectively dropped at what you've just said. I mean, we, we appreciate your candor. However, it doesn't help the rest of us, does it? All the rest of the eurozone. I, I would say this. Listen, I would say this to everybody who's watching this. This economic crisis is like a cancer. If you just wait and wait thinking this is going to go away, just like a cancer is going to grow and it's going to be too late. We are here to inspire a nationwide movement. We are here to inspire a nationwide movement. To challenge the status quo of an economic system. To challenge the status quo of an economic system. That currently subverts both our government. That currently subverts both our government. And our social fabric. And our social fabric. We are the 99%. We People join us! Until the 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 people join
What I would say to everybody is get prepared.、Uh, this is not a time right now to、um, wishful thinking. The government is going to sort things out. The governments don't rule the world. Goldman Sachs rules the world. Goldman Sachs does not care about this rescue package. Neither does the big funds. So actually, what I would I, I would actually tell people, I want to help people.、Uh, people can make money from this. It isn't just traders. What they need to do is learn about how to how to make money from a, a downward market. The first thing people should do is protect their assets, protect what they have, because in less than 12 months. Uh, my prediction is that savings of mil- millions of people is going to vanish,、uh, and this is just the beginning. I would say be prepared and act now. The biggest risk people c- can take right now is not acting. Do you dream about the economy at night? I try not to.、Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare. <Not I>, You're listening to the Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Charles Eisenstein. A lot of what goes on right now in our society kind of rotates around the axis of being told what to do, and it's kind of a top-down model <laughs> that humans instinctively almost take orders or direction from people they perceive as being more educated or more authoritative than they are. We see that with you know religion, we see it with television and advertising, we see it in politics. Is there a part of humans that kind of instinctively want to follow orders or want to not think for themselves, and is that kind of go away? As you educate people more, is that part of why humans can be led to do such grievous things? I think it gets worse as you educate them more. People always think that the solution is more education, but I think perhaps the solution is less education. Mostly because those who administer education are those who have deeply invested in the status quo. I mean, it's in us. To behave that way under certain conditions, and today we have we live in conditions that incite that aspect of human nature. I mean, it, it is something in us that is brought forth under certain conditions, and you could even say is symptomatic of certain conditions. But we could create other conditions that call forth our autonomy, our creativity, our thinking outside the box, and there are certainly alternative systems of education that aim to do that, and they're alternative for a very good reason because. Because those qualities of independence and thinking outside the box did not serve the machine that we've known. But generally speaking, you know, we are social animals, and our perceptions and our values are influenced by the people around us and by the systems of symbols that we create. Authority comes largely from the wielding of certain symbols, the chief's headdress, even the three-piece suit. There's all the kinds of signaling that happens, and in our current society, it's associated with reward and punishment, shame, conditional self-approval, and all of these things. On a deep level, they are also part of what I call the age of separation. They are part of a, a way of training children that gets them to fight their own desires and to seek to gain approval instead. We have a whole system basically based on conditional self-acceptance. Right? If you want to control somebody, the most effective way to do it is to threaten their survival. Well, what's the most profound way to threaten a child? It is with the threat of abandonment. That's what any young mammal is most terrified of.、Uh, a, a baby animal, if it's abandoned by its mother, it will cry out piteously, attracting every predator for miles. But that risk is not as bad as the certain death of being abandoned by the mother. So we have a whole way of raising children 
based on that, you know, be a good boy, you should be ashamed of yourself, what's wrong with you? And we kind of wield this technology of conditional acceptance, it uses this threat of abandonment, or disapproval, you know, is, is a kind of a dilute form of abandonment. And so we train people to listen to this survival anxiety, rather than trusting their natural desires, their authentic desires. On many levels, in many ways, not just money, but in many ways, we have built a society based on the fear of not surviving, a scarcity-based society. And it doesn't have to be this way because we live in such an abundant world. We could live much more richly than we do today with much less labor. Most human labor doesn't actually go toward anything that benefits human welfare. We spend so much of our time and energy on armaments and plastic junk, you know, and, and big suburbs with huge houses that are a substitute for community and the town plaza where people are hanging out. And we're destroying the earth in the process. And the money system we use enforces this idea that we have to do these things for money to survive. And it's built on these deeper societal kind of decisions to go in that direction, these deeper myths. And it looks like the direction we're headed right now is towards a significant shift and significant change in the money system, whether that's a, a total breakdown. It seems very likely at this point, eventually countries sitting on these massive piles of debt will have to get rid of them, which means most likely defaulting. And when that happens, it'll definitely cause quite a few issues uh, around the world, most likely resulting in social unrest, which has the potential to be quite destructive. How do you see us taking that social unrest that we're already seeing in many places around the world and turn it into a constructive force, perhaps maybe even using it as an opportunity to implement some of the ideas we've been talking about today. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if all of that rebellious energy were channeled towards something that were creative rather than destructive. You know, I think that that energy, that pent up rage is going to have to express itself, sad to say, before people are ready to build. And the sooner that we change, the less pent-up rage there is, there's going to be. But there's a lot of it here, too. It's just simmering under the surface. And it's amazing how quickly when the agreements of property and their enforcement mechanisms show just like a little chink, it's amazing how quickly it all unravels. You know, it's like the thread in your clothes that if you pull it, the whole thing falls apart. One day, people are abiding by all of the customs and rituals of making an exchange. You know, you put your card in, you put money. I mean, this is all ritual action. You know, it's all symbol transactions. One day they're doing that, the next day they're breaking windows and taking stuff. It's It just shows like how fragile and ephemeral this thing called money is. We think it's so real. If anything is real, right, it's money. And so it says, be realistic, be practical, be pragmatic. They're often talking about money as if it were the most real thing in the world. But one of the functions of these episodes of social unrest is that they revealed the unreality of the things that we thought were so real. And it's very destructive. But on the other hand, it also communicates, hey, we could create something different. It's not as permanent as we thought. It's not as real as we thought. It's something that can be reinvented. So I think in that sense, the riots can awaken us to some important truths. How do you see us moving forward? And perhaps someone's listening to us right now and they're they're hearing the truth in your words and they're realizing that there's this dissonance between all of the things that they've been taught about money and society and that they've received throughout their education. And they're saying, you know, I want to find this alternative. And maybe they, they read through your book and they find these alternatives. How do you actually see some of these ideas getting implemented in the real world? Well, 
Right now, you can implement them on a small scale with other people who no longer want to fully participate in the world that's been offered us. But for them to be implemented on a mass level, it's going to take a breakdown. People don't usually try something new while the old is still working for them. And for most people, it's still working, or at least it's still possible to deceive themselves into thinking that it's working. And that state of affairs isn't going to last too much longer. So I think right now is the time to practice these new ways of being, of relating, these new technologies, and everything that people are doing is important. Even if it's very marginal, like you know permaculture or local currency or something like this, it's very marginal. It's an infinitesimal percentage of total economic activity or total, ag- total agricultural activity. But it's important because it's creating kind of an energetic template that people can step into. It's creating an alternative. Whereas if we didn't have these things and there was a total breakdown, then there would be nothing to be offered as an alternative. So that's one way to channel our creative desires. And there are many, many other ways. Like I don't discount traditional efforts to stop the dam, you know, or to stop the road. These kind of things are important too, to preserve some wealth for the new world so that when we hit bottom, we don't hit it quite as hard. I really hope it doesn't hit too hard because when you hit hard and there's 6 billion people on the planet and there's not a lot of food for everybody, that hard hitting translates into a lot of people dying. Yeah. Well, Charles, this has been a really great interview. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to leave for our listeners? Any words of advice or where they can find your book or your website or anything like that? Yeah, my my main website is ascentofhumanity.com. But you can also find me on Facebook and I have a a blog. It's on charleseisenstein.com. It's on sacred economics. And there's a lot of articles in Reality Sandwich too. But I just want to say that, you know, really now is the time to get in touch with our purpose for being here and the gifts that that we have to create this new world because the old world is really falling apart. We see it all around us. And, uh, you know, it's time to do that and to remind each other that that's not insane. Because a lot of us have been having these secret desires and secret thoughts, like the world isn't supposed to be this way, and feeling a bit insane because so many voices around us tell us that this is the way it is, it's always been that way, and it's going to stay that way, and who are you to question it? But we can remind each other that we're sane. And yeah, so I'll just leave with that. That wraps up our conversation with Charles Eisenstein on myths and money and gold as a store of value and then injury that our education system gave to us and what we can do to find real value. And then also we talked a lot about negative interest economies and other ways that we can actually start implementing a new economic system that recognizes the unique role that humans play in our world. So what do you think of what Charles said about how education is the injury that we receive and then the insult is that we get out of our educational system and we can't find jobs which are the very thing that we sacrifice those years of study for to receive i think that injury is one that is very common among people of our age i think that 
It's very common even in my family. My little brother is just getting out of undergraduate degrees and unable to find a job, he's forced to go back into the educational system to get a master's degree. And myself, as being an undergraduate through the public system in the United States, has been fully indoctrinated in the ways of the American educational system. The educational system for a lot of people doesn't work. And for a lot of people, you know, they're just not good at, at book learning and, and memorizing vast amounts of information. It's interesting now that with the collapse of the so many other systems around us, the educational system is no longer relevant in a lot of ways. And the book memorization that is called for in so many aspects of the education system no longer applies in our lives. What really matters now most of all is human connections and knowing exactly. people. And that's the only thing that can even get you a job these days is knowing that person at the grocery store to get you that cashier job. Yeah, and that's sadly what it's come down to. I was just seeing the other day that Seton Hall in New Jersey, their annual tuition is typically $31,440 a year, but that they're changing it so that students who graduate in their top 10% of their high school class will pay only 10000 which matches the rate that's charged by Rutgers. And what you see is that college education is really the next bubble to burst, and it's starting to burst, because when you go to college and you spend tons of money for that degree and you go into debt, it makes sense if you can go and earn enough to repay all of that in the future with a job. But now that the job market's looking more and more bleak for graduates, even people who are starting with school, they're saying, I don't know if I want to go and be at Harvard Business School and spend, you know, $45,000 a year on tuition and then rack up $80,000 in debt or $120,000 in debt, something like that, when I may not be able to go to Wall Street and get a high powered, uh, high intensity job and pay all that off. So what's happening is all of these schools are finding that they're losing out on people because they charge so much for tuition and they're having to radically restructure. And Charles was talking about slavery and how we have this huge debt burden that hangs over our head and it serves as slavery. And he makes a really good point there in that it maybe is a bit of an exaggeration to talk about ourselves as modern slaves because slaves in the past had such horrible physical labor conditions and didn't have the illusion of freedom like we do. And we do have much more free will. But at the same time, what other choices do you have to support yourself other than going to school, getting a college education, and then going and get a job? There's not a lot of other ways to support yourself because the way the American education system has restructured itself, it's really hard to go and make it as a tradesperson. Now, Justin, when you say that I'm a slave, does that mean that I, I shouldn't be enjoying my football watching, McDonald's eating, mall shopping, Amazon surfing lifestyle. I should be I should be discount I should not be happy about those things. Is that what you're telling me? Isn't isn't that why you get a job is to go and pe spend money on going to a football game or go and spend money right, at but the mall? I, I like going to football games and I like watching TV and I like eating at McDonald's. I mean that Big Mac is so good. Yeah, Big Macs are pretty good. And that sauce, what is in that sauce? What is in that sauce? So I don't understand when you say I'm a slave, what that really means means to me. What does it mean? It means that what you perceive has been completely socially constructed and our perceptions are limited. They're fundamentally limited and to know something truly is to believe it with a high degree of certainty. So a lot of people in America believe that they're free. 
they believe that they have freedom, but your day-to-day -day perception is just a limited understanding of reality. And so often our perceptions are based on these fallacies and heresies that have been fed to us through our educational system. There's no better way to completely construct reality than to go through the educational system because they are informing what we perceive to be our reality. You're saying that through big business and through the government and through my educational system, I've been brainwashed to like Big Macs and to like fried food and to like football. That I have no other choice but to pick between Coke and Pepsi. Is that what you're trying to tell me? That I, I have no other choice because I've been brainwashed to think that those entertainments are the all and be all of my life, that I have nothing else to look forward to except for the grilling out and drinking beer on the weekends? What I'm saying is that our worldview is everything because we act on it and our worldview is constructed through these perceptions that are given to us by government, which influences education, which is also fed by big business. And in a lot of ways, it's indistinguishable from propaganda. How can you really distinguish education from propaganda in a lot of cases? They're often yeah. intertwined. There's one thing that the North American school system is good at, at doing, and it's producing people who care about their narrow area of interest or expertise and athletics and college sports. So if I'm a person who's gone through those that American education system, who's gone through the indoctrination that is so much a part of our life as an American citizen, or you know, as a Canadian citizen, I'm sure there's some of that too. What that what is it that makes me want to deviate from that lifestyle? I mean, this lifestyle has been good to me. It's it's clothed me, it's fed me, it's given me entertainment. Why do I want to? break from being a part of this system that's been so happy for me? Why would I ever want to cash in my 401k? And why would I ever want to start growing my own vegetables when I, when I have them in the grocery store? That's a great point. And the supermarket is stocked to the brim of amazing variety from all over the world. The monetary system has served North Americans really well and people in developed nations really well. So in a lot of ways, there's no reason why you should question it. But that reality is starting to break down. And you see it when there's people in the streets occupying your city because they can't get a job, because they can't get the basic things that they need through the monetary system to survive, then suddenly that story of abundance, that story of variety, that story of needs being fulfilled through a monetary system is going away. And that's what Charles was referring to when he was talking about money as the myth of our society. So many of our actions that we perceive as free, as freedom and as free will, are really influenced because we have a monetary system that's based on scarcity, that's based on a conditional acceptance like he was talking about. And it makes it really hard for us to know what human nature can really be capable of because we have such a competition-based society. And there's plenty of examples of other societies in the past, a lot of them indigenous cultures or even modern ones in other parts of the world that have completely different societal value sets. And because of that, they're able to do completely different things and have much happier ways of being. I am so hopeful for the time and for the place and for the environment where human beings can collaborate on meaningful projects and not be manipulated by things and to pursue activities and with the freedom to make the choices that they want to and to, to exercise the full width and breadth of what it means to be human. But I'm also a little bit doubtful that this 
kind of place could ever exist with the current kind of human mindset that exists in so many places. I, I feel like you need some kind of will to have this kind of place and to not follow convention because it's so easy to fall into the same kind of conventions that humans have lived in for the entire duration of I mean, human existence. You, you mentioned a few tribes that have had these kind of freedoms, but for the most part in developed industrial societies, we've lived under the thumb of very powerful rulers and, and very willful men. What can change that makes it all right for humans to live with this kind of freedom that you're talking about? I think what's changing is that the people on the top are consolidating their power because they see what's happening. But then as they consolidate, they're realizing that there's 99% of the population that are being left out of it. And all of these people are rising up against them. And they're not going to have a lot of friends. For example, Dick Cheney was here in Vancouver just recently, last week, in fact. And a lot of people were talking about trying to arrest him as a war criminal because he stepped outside of the U.S. borders. Well, there's no way that Canada was going to uh, build up the cojones to actually arrest Dick Cheney as a war criminal because so often the Canadian federal policy really just bends over backwards to make uh, America happy. But what did happen is that tons of protesters went to the $500 a plate dinner and stood outside and protested and made it hard for all those people to get inside. And one guy who went to the protest, he told me that it made him realize that when things start going downhill, when things really start getting bad here in North America, those people aren't going to have a lot of friends. And you see that with the Occupy San Francisco movement as well. I was just watching a video of all the people in Occupy San Francisco who were standing outside the banks demanding the bankers to come outside saying you have to come outside and making it hard for them to even get in the building. It's an unfortunate time to be a part of the banking elite because even though you've won big with all of these incredible bailouts over the last few years, those bailouts have come at the expense of national stability and the austerity measures that are being implemented to pay for them are really making people angry. And So a I lot of national anger as well too, wouldn't you say? a lot of national anger and I don't know how much longer it can go on because people are going to start going out to the bankers and holding them up as the ones responsible for this chaos, for this mess, when it starts impacting people's lives, like unemployment benefits running out, everything's going to start being focused on these people who have the money, who have the wealth that other people were told that they could get if they worked hard. You know, this whole ideology of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap and work hard. There's a lot of poor people who work way harder than anyone who's up at the top. And so all the myths that we've created about ingenuity and wealth are really starting to run dry because there's no one in Canada, there's no one in the United States who's made it on their own. They all went through an education system that was subsidized through public money. They all drove there on roads that were subsidized through public money. And they all got jobs that were moved and reallocated through tax incentives, through various things that resulted in sacrifices that municipalities had to make. And so the myth of a self-made man is really starting to break down. And so that's why what Charles Eisenstein is talking about in creating a new myth of cooperation and collaboration is so important right now. And he's creating a money system that's going to help us match that. I'm very hopeful for the future where those things are our reality and where we can live together in equality. And you see the slow motion bank run that's happening in Europe. In Greece, there's one story of a guy that I read in the Telegraph in the UK, and he ran out and got all his money out and stuffed it into a bag. And he thought that would keep it safe. Well, it turns out that it was filled with actual uh, grease from food. 
and rats came and ate the bag and ate all his money. <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty unfortunate. I mean, you got to feel bad for a guy who lost his life savings because it got eaten by rats that <laughs> that uh, were confusing uh, Euro Greece for Euros. So it was kind of a strange thing. But it shows you how we've placed so much emotional attachment to the security that money provides for us. And that security is starting to dissolve. It is. The rats are just eating up our money. Yep. in so many different ways. That's so true. So if, if you want to learn more about ways that rats can eat your money or that you can save your money from being eaten by rats, you can check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on Twitter. And you can leave us a voicemail message on our voicemail. So many great comments on our website recently. Throw us up a comment on the website if you want to. It's uh, been really great. We had the host of Radio EcoShock, Alex Smith. He left a message saying that he really enjoyed episode number 21. We had a friend from San Francisco say that in our episode 23 with Sandra Katz, that San Francisco sourdough was the best and that we really shouldn't even consider Parisian sourdough because it's so inferior to San Francisco sourdough. So I don't know what you think about that, but he was very adamant about it. Uh, we also had this voicemail that I can play. The end of your podcast, your Alex Jones impression sounds less like Alex Jones and more like a WWE professional wrestler. Where he has like that's the impression I got. I was like, oh, it does sound like Alex Jones, but he also he can kind of do a like a professional wrestler doing his soap opera type rant rant on a um, stage. But also um, the FEMA director. When I first started listening to him, it sounded like an old British nanny. I just thought that was pretty funny. So you can either a use the FEMA impression or b. Use it as a um, British nanny. Either one, it sounds like it. And, or Alex Jones could be a professional wrestler. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. Shoot us an email, and we will include it on the show or shoot you a response. And if you do leave a voicemail, Justin will hook you up with a very, very fancy music CD. It's made from all the awesome music that we don't have time to include in the show. Because I honestly have a list of like 20 tracks that I want to include on every show, but we only had time for like four. For some reason, people are quite timid about the voicemail. Everyone will leave you a blog comment. A few people will send the emails. But when it comes to the voicemail, there's some timid folks. So don't be timid. Get out there and call us. Don't be timid. Get a CD. Leave a voicemail. Do what's right. Fight the fight. Occupy exactly. Wall Street. Yes. And live well. But I think ultimately humanity will enter an age of cooperation with Earth. Instead of violating nature, we extend nature to new realms. We extend, for example, ecology into the economic realm so that there's no longer such a thing as waste, but all things circulate. And ultimately, we explore more and more deeply, level after level of after level of our oneness. So it's not like, you know, instantaneous waking up and we're all one, you know, kumbaya, although we may have moments of that. It's not a linear process, but essentially we're discovering level after level after level of connection to other beings, to the planet itself, to the cosmos. And based on that progressive unveiling, we develop technologies and ways of relating and ways of being that, that manifest those understandings in the physical world.
time on The Extra Environmentalist. Why would you ever derail the gravy train? Why would the bankers ever say, you know what, we're taking massive paychecks home, we're living the life of Riley, there's no problems, the press aren't sniffing around, everything's going in the right direction. I tell you what, we'll have a crash. I don't think it happens like that. The crash happens because it's structurally determined. And the reason it's structurally determined is because of the junk science, junk economics that we've taught over the last 125 years. Now, behaviour in the market and the behaviour in, in in, uh, the economies it's not a conspiracy but all that behavior is determined because of the way that we treat natural resources the way we treat the factors of production basically the conspiracy i suppose has been laid 125 150 years ago by co-opting or corrupting the, the teaching of economics so yes there was certainly a conspiracy back there by buying off professors and telling Ivy League universities all around the world not to teach a certain brand of, of economics because that brand of economics, i.e. the classical school um, and treating factors, factors of production um, in a very different way to the way we teach them now, uh, that would deliver a very, very different uh, society, socially just. Uh, uh, environmentally far more sound and from a, a quality point of view and a quality of life point of view uh, it would be a utopia in, compar in comparison to what we've got now Coming this fall to Extra Environmentalist Pictures. The story of a man who represented a nation that had to change. The AAA rating of the United States has just been downgraded to AA. What are we going to do? I think we're going to need a new type of superhero to deal with this. We're going to need someone who has extreme strength extreme understanding and extreme economic literacy. We're going to need Captain Double America. Captain Double America. I'm Captain Double America. I'm here to save the day. I'm going to need a motorcycle and I'm going to need a gun. I need these things now. But all we have is this toothbrush. I'll floss out crime. Sir, we just found a shield, but it's made in China. Now look here, see? I've got a plan to take this country down another notch on its debt rating. I'm going around to all the college sporting events, see? And I'm gonna make sure that all their mascots are actually super villains with evil powers. They'll never even see it coming. All the fans will be at the games tailgating, they'll be drinking beer, and they'll be empowering the mascots even further to wreak economic havoc on the nation. <laughs> This fall, your expectations for action for economics will be downgraded. Captain Double America, everyone is going out to tailgates across the country at college football games, and instead of finding a solid economic alternative to raise the country's debt rating, they're drinking tons of beer and hanging out. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to go to every one of those tailgates and I'm going to make their beer warm. Maybe I will even pee in their potato chips. Stand back, I don't know how big this thing is going to get. Now look here, see, Captain Double America. My plan was foolproof until you came along here, see? You're going down. 
Not while I'm around, anonymous bad guy. I will make everyone's beer warm so they will no longer want to be at your evil football game. Yeah, I'm leaving. This place sucks. Man, I'm getting out of here. This place yeah. is awful. I hate this place. Every generation demands a hero, needs its problems to be solved. Captain Double America, a superhero you will always be indebted to.